When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Bizarre Conspiracies. I'm Conrad Toll, and with me today is... Eric Patino. I've got a interesting history lesson, tapped on with a little bit of unknown, which I'm going to try and fill in the gaps with a few theories. It's the history of Catholic monks. Where did they exactly start is actually a little unknown. The beginning of Christianity is lost in a darkness. You see, the only way that we really know what happened back in the day is by looking at ancient texts, but there isn't a whole lot of writing about what happened or the beginnings of the Christian church right around the time when it was adopted by the Roman Emperor Constantine when he converted to Christianity as it was slowly spread across the Roman Empire and became the state religion and different parts of the Roman Empire were told to become Christianized. Exactly how quickly they became Christian and how that came about was a rather messy and unguided process. As a result, it wasn't well documented and because the documents are not well kept or didn't even exist, it's sort of an unknown period. So that's why I say it was a time lost in darkness. As far as a historian's concerned, that is a little part of history where the lights just got turned off and not turned back on the Roman churches there. So if you go to one of the earliest documents written on monks and is generally the overall consensus for how to be a monk, what a monk is, and all of that for the Roman Catholic Church. You go to the rules of St. Benedict. Now, St. Benedict was a early Catholic, and when he put down his rules, that was kind of adopted as just the set rules for how to be a monk, and everybody has been following his writings ever since. But here's the thing, he didn't start monks. He's just a fellow who institutionalized them, I suppose. They existed beforehand, but they really weren't under any particular contract or a rule of authority and that sort of thing. They just existed. So let me read to you what he said of the four types of monks out of the rules of St. Benedict. He says, the first and clearest type of monk is that of the under a monastic kind of rule who live in a monastery. There's an abbot. They are part of the church and the abbot follows doctrine of the Catholic church and the all the monks below him are yield authority to the abbot. 
Then the next kind of monk is those who are not in a service, um, like a novice under an abbot, but they are full of the daily discipline and have left the monastery after becoming strong monks and are well established for the lonely battles of the desert and fighting beyond the line of their brethren apart from the consolation of companionship and are competent at single-handed fighting. Then there's the third type, and he says they are the Sabites. They Sabites? Been, yes, who have not been brought by any discipline under any rule, so are not as gold that has been refined by fire, but are soft like lead, and while still by their works keeping the faith, are known by their lacking and their ability to be corrupt, I suppose. And these who being by twos and threes, or sometimes singular without a pastor or a priest, and not enclosed by the church, but in their own sheepfolds, they take the law of their own whim and do whatever they think or choose, and they live in their own houses and that sort of thing and keep their own businesses and mm -hmm. do whatever it is that sustains them. And the fourth kind of monk... He calls them the Gyrovigis, who live in a guest's house for three or four days at a time and then move along and they wander, never settle, they're slaves to their own pleasures, of the snares of gluttony, and in every respect are worse than that of the Cerebites. Concerning the most miserable manner of life are these, it is better to be silent than to speak to these. And then he says, take into consideration these four, let's then discuss what is the best type of way to be a monk in a monastery. And then he writes the rest of the rules concerning monasteries. Anyway, so what we can see from this is he's discussing the general state of monks at the time when he's trying to put law and order into monks. And he's talking very strongly against these particular monks who seem to be out of control. But here's the thing. Where did all of these monks come from? This is the first introduction of monks into the Catholic Church. Where did they spring up from? What started it? Mm. Who was the first monk? It's not known. But somehow, the lights flip back on. I suppose in this case, this is um, St. Benedict turning the lights on. He writes down some stuff and now we understand, hey, there's monks now. We don't know where they came from, but we know that St. St. Benedict of the day is talking about them. So, let me try and make some speculations in history on where exactly these monks came from. In order to do that, I believe we have to go back and look at the Greek philosopher Socrates. Now, Socrates, okay. he described himself as the horsefly of Athens, or sometimes the... Um, gladfly or something like that it's a bug that he says will come upon a slothful horse and bite it and make it run so his idea is he's the whip that goes about and makes Athens move socrates was a controversial figure at the time and he went about criticizing people and he made tons of enemies and eventually he was told to commit suicide he was taken into court and they found him guilty of being immoral and so he was punished by having to commit suicide. He had many different people who followed after his particular type of teaching. And his teaching was mostly about happiness. Uh, mm. Or at least a big section of it was concerning human meaning and happiness. And so he said that happiness is people's main goal. 
if you achieve a great success, that is happiness. Your goal in life, if you achieve your goal in life, that is happiness. Everything that you do contributes to happiness, essentially. Happiness is not something that you can purchase or that sort of thing. You pursue it and even in means of giving somebody, say, you try and help somebody out who's struggling. That is, you only do that to benefit your own happiness, even though it's not directly beneficial to you to give away your resources to someone else or your time to assist somebody, that in turn is actually helping you get closer to happiness. So what he says in his first point is all of your actions are inspired by you trying to achieve happiness. Hmm. And two, happiness does not depend on external things, but rather how those things, the external factors are used. So it's not what's being used, it's how it's being used, pretty much is what he's saying. Hmm. And those were his biggest teachings on happiness. Out of him, I suppose, came two different trains of thought. Uh, there was the Romans took this and made Stoicism out of it. But more directly and more akin to today's topic, mm -hmm. his direct students invented Epicureanism. Now, what that is... What is that? Is it's the idea that you should live in here and now and not try um... and get things for the future. So that's actually in contrast to what we are normally taught these days. We are taught delayed gratification. You work hard to achieve sure. a greater reward in the future. Right. So Epicureanism is kind of opposed to things like retirement and saving up for retirement <laughs> entirely. It's all about seeking pleasure here and now. And it's also tied strongly to the idea that happiness is the absence of pain and that pain is the opposite to happiness. So if you can minimize pain, then what you're doing is increasing happiness. They're one and the same. Epicureanism is quite a... Uh quite an interesting thing in uh, practice. So one of the things that he did, the student of Socrates, and his name is Epicurus, and Epicureanism is named after him. So Epicurus went and he bought a piece of land and he had all of his friends move in with him and they all just lived as happily as they could. So it's not necessarily trying to buy luxury and just partying all the time. It's just concentrating on what makes somebody happy. And so mm -hmm. if you got happiness out of making paintings, then you would go to his house and live together with all of your friends and you would paint. And you would try to be in solitude out in the wilderness, but then also you would try and be with friends often, people who brought you happiness. What if so nobody you brings just you happiness? Well, then you would become a monk. I see. This is where it's leading up to. It is. This is leading up to the few different types of monks. Well, see, he's not directly a monk. See, a monk is where, here's my theory, uh -huh. that Stoicism, which was a different split of Socrates... And Epicureanism, which is actually often seen as an opposite to Stoicism, but they're really not opposites. They're actually very similar, mm. kind of blend back into each other together to form monks. So monks are Epicureanists and Stoics, or a weird blend of the two. Okay. Or perhaps two conflicting <laughs> things in the same sure. idea. So you could have two things at war with each other in the same idea. 
And, you know, monks, it requires vows and that sort of thing. When you, you get into it, you make a vow for life and uh, you better be happy with it. So because of this idea of Epicureanism, it did get popular in different communes. Because that's what they were. They were just a bunch of communes where everybody would do what they felt they liked doing, not what they were particularly most valuable at. So... Okay, I got a question for you. Uh-huh. What if you're a jack of all trades? You're just kind of good at everything. Then you just do whatever you feel like doing when you wake up in the morning. What if doing nothing brings you happiness, but you're so talented at doing everything? What then? You know, that's one of the biggest <laughs> issues with uh, communism. What do you do if you just want to do nothing? Mm. I have yeah. What you become is a philosopher is what you do. You just sit around and talk all day. That's what you do. But I mean, there are people that are just talented at many things, many, many things, and they're not particularly happy doing it. They're just really good at doing it. Right. And so what Epicureanism would say is don't pursue money, pursue passions. Just mm. do what you like. So even in the end, it may not be the best goal for you long sure. term. It's what makes you happy now. Is this sort of their like purpose, what they consider yeah. the purpose of life? Absolutely. One of the other things about Epicureanism is generally they espouse that there's no afterlife. Um, really? Generally. And they're not exactly sure that there is a higher order or they don't believe necessarily in the spiritual. So mm. they don't. They just think that things happen randomly, that the world is kind of cruel and twisted by nature. So you just try to make the best of it that you can while you can, because you're not promised tomorrow. You could die. YOLO, mm. bro. I so hate just that you, Yeah. So their idea is just do what you can right now. Now, stoicism is actually very similar in the fact that they say that the world is very cruel, but as opposed to, you know, just try to get as much happiness in the short amount of time as possible. Stoicism says life is miserable. Deal with it. Um, embrace misery. Um, you know, things, bad stuff is going to happen. So just expect bad stuff. The most famous of all Stoics is Seneca. He was the tutor of Nero. He did not like Nero all that much. But after a time, Nero determined that Seneca was planning on overthrowing him. So he ordered a bunch of guards to go to Seneca's home and force Seneca to commit suicide. So when these guards arrive, Seneca just kind of accepts it and says, yep, life is kind of cruel. This stuff happens. I so they're kind of like masochists? A little bit. You could say that. That's definitely a thing. But what's more of their idea is don't fret about things which are out of your control. Only concern yourself about things that are in your control. <laughs> so except death... <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. He couldn't control Nero, and Nero, he couldn't control all the power that Nero had, so he just have to accept whatever Nero hands him. So, for a Stoic, the idea is, if you are in a car wreck, and there's nothing you could do to avoid that car wreck, but in the last few seconds before in the car wreck, you did your best to try and divert from the wreck, even though you didn't succeed, at the end of the wreck, you go, well... I was able to accomplish not getting the front mashed. It was only the side. It was a clipping hit, not a full-on direct hit. It was the other guy's fault. He's totally at fault. I could not control him. I could not stop him from hitting my car. I could only minimize the damage. So a stoic would say, in this circumstance, be happy. Because mm. what you could control, you did control. Mm. What was out of your control, you might as well not worry about and just accept. 
And then on the same foot, if something great happens to you that was out of your control and there was only a little bit that you could do to control it and you didn't do that thing that you could have done, but still the end result was good for you, you would still mourn the thing that you didn't do because that was in your control. This great thing has happened to you is out of your control. So it's the idea of only look at what you can control. Now I see how the two can be blended. They're often seen as opposites because you actually will get people with opposite behaviors coming out of it, even Mm. though they're very similar. So I think that merged better with Catholicism, the idea of Stoicism, but still the ideas remained over from Epicureanism because the Epicureists had these communes all around the Roman Empire. But when the Roman Empire became Christian, they became monasteries. Now, what Mm. happened to the people in those monasteries? I don't know. Because I remember the lights are off. The lights turn off. They were Epicurean communes. The lights come back on and now they're Catholic monasteries Hmm. where the people inside of them are still doing roughly the same thing. In In the monasteries, in the Epicurean communes, there was people who some of them would farm and help feed the monastery. There was people who would be philosophers and teach. There would be people who would clean. There would be people there who would raise livestock and that sort of thing. So the actions performed by these people were all the same, but the doctrine and the teachings was all different. Instead of living to be happy, they were taught to be Catholic idea as proposed by St. Thomas Aquinas, but he was talking about happiness. So Thomas Aquinas is a famous Catholic who was talking about happiness, and he said, man's ultimate happiness consists as a contemplation of truth. For this operation, it is specific to man and is shared with no other animal. It is also not directed at any other end since the contemplation of truth is sought for its own sake. And in addition, this operational man is united with higher beings since only a human can be connected with both God and angels and that sort of thing. I'm not exactly sure what he's saying, but I get in the gist. The idea is he's saying your main happiness is to meditate and to try and focus on holy things and get happiness from God or something. Isn't that the kind of the the basis of Christianity anyway? Uh, Yeah, it's kind of like a, yeah, I think it's based off of like the New Testament writings of the Apostle Paul. So Mm -hmm. that's at conflict with the Epicureanist. For sure. Mm. The teaching there is very different, but it's not in total juxtaposition with Stoicism. And it's more in line with actually a third teaching, which I haven't mentioned yet, called it's based off of teaching that Aristotle had, which is wisdom is what you should be seeking. It's like the mix of the different ones. So they're saying, you know, seek God, but then the way that they behave is more like a Stoic. They believe in living on frugal means. They take vows of poverty and that sort of thing, where they Mm. eat just bread and water and they wear very plain clothes and they don't have belts. They wear a rope instead and they shave their heads and they live a very Stoic lifestyle where Mm. they try to devoid themselves of personal pleasure Because they, I guess, expect life to be miserable and they just say, well, you know, I don't get happiness from earthly pleasures. 
I'm like a stoic who expects that my pleasure to come from internally and not from the things that I get. So it's a, a complete rejection of Epicureanism. So to bring this back to what I think happened is these Epicureanists were either one of two things. They were run out of these communes or two, they were converted. And assuming the way the Catholic Church worked, I'm pretty sure it was one or the other. You know, they said, okay, you can convert or you can get inquisitioned. And so that's where I think when you go and you read what the St. Benedict wrote in his Rules of St. Benedict, how he's talking about, you know, we've got the good monks who stay in the monasteries and they do what they're told. And then we've got the okay monks who wander about and they're good on their own. And then we've got the bad monks who live in like small groups and do whatever they want. And then we've got the really bad monks who just kind of wander around and uh, stay at other people's house as a guest and then wander on when their welcome wears out. I think what's going on is those are the remains of the Epicurean monks. These good wandering monks, those are the hermits, the people who find happiness in solitude, are just a continuation of people who are doing what they want to do, what they feel called to do, which is not to be crammed into a building with all of their friends, but mm. wandering about doing their, I guess, duties as a Catholic monk. Sure. And then you've got the ones who live in inside of the monastery. So that is my theory on where monks come from, because quite honestly, if you think about it, why would the Catholics even invent monasteries? Because there's priests, and those are the people who go out to the masses, and they preach to the masses. The monks don't do that. The monks right. stay inside of their monastery, and they don't really commune with the outside world. They get in there, they copy books, they pray, they do their uh, stoic self-whipping. What do they call that? When like they deliberately inflict themselves with pain to drive out evil? They do that thingy. They subject themselves to hardships, and they shun happiness. I mean, it really doesn't provide all that much value for the Vatican to have these folks. Every mm. now, yeah, they produce books, but that's it. it just copies of books, I guess. Mm. So my guess is this is like the Catholic repeat of holidays. You know how they take pagan holidays and then they would Christianify all the different events. So, for instance, you got Christmas where you got this Santa Claus figure who rides around on a, a Nordic flying sleigh and does sure. all these Nordic traditions all of a sudden he gets Christianized into Saint, Saint Nicholas. Nicholas. So this a Saint Nicholas guy and then like all these Christian traditions get Christianized from their pagan roots. Maybe that's the same thing that happened to all of these Catholic, Catholic churches just taking over everything. Well, I mean, they, they kind of did a good job. The All of Europe was Catholic for a time, so whatever their method was, yeah. it seemed to be working. And of course, there was the two big splits in the church. The Russians split and did the Russian Orthodox Church, and then sure. there was the Anglican split. And the Anglican split was very important because the Anglicans became the powerful dominant force in the New World, which led to the New World power not being Catholic because the Catholics in the New World were the Spanish and the Portuguese. And the Portuguese colonies and Spanish colonies were not as powerful as like the uh, Canadian and the Americas. Anyway, mm. there's my theory. The uh, Catholics Christianized Greek philosophy and made monasteries. <laughs> Coming up on the holiday seasons, mm -hmm. my request for the listeners is what specific things about specifically Christmas, because we do a Christmas special each year, 
Yep. Which Christianized pagan theories would you want us to cover this year? I mean, it could be one that you already know about and you just want us to research and share with the rest of the audience. Just send in your favorite crazy Christian, Christianized traditions around the, the New Year's and the Christmas. And I'm sure that now's probably the best time to send it in because if we get too close, we might have something else already planned. Well, thanks for listening. If you want to support us on Patreon, we've we've got a Patreon. I probably Eric will leave a link. Yes. And um, we'll catch you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.